This is the Feminem Podcast, the official podcast of Feminem, discussing all things femme, a little bit of EM, and everything in between. I'm Jenny Beck Esme, editor and chief of Feminem. Next up on our Fix 19 content, we have a talk that's really fantastic from Dr. Tracy Madsen. She is the Associate Director of the Division of Sex and Gender and the ED Director of Acute Stroke Services in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brown University. Now, Dr. Madsen conducts research in the realm of sex and gender-based medicine, as well as women's health and gender disparities in the physician workforce. In her talk, she explores how she got interested in this topic to begin with and how she's built her career around it, and really explains why we can no longer use a one-size-fits-all approach to any aspect of medical care, and instead we need to be using a sex and gender-specific approach to the treatment of every illness in order to take better care of everybody. I think you're going to find it really interesting. Take a listen. Hi. I'm here today to talk to you about taking care of women. As a child, I remember watching three generations of women push boundaries in their respective lives. This is my great-grandmother, Graham Biddy. She was known for her short stature. Late in life, with three layers of clothing, she probably weighed 90 pounds. But nothing else about her was diminutive. She lived 110 years long, from 1886 to 1995. She witnessed women gaining the right to vote, not to mention two world wars. It was absolutely fascinating getting to know her. As an adolescent, though, I remember learning that she was not just my sweet little great-grandmother, who always seemed to have a bag of homemade karma corn on hand. She had survived many hardships. She survived the Great Depression. She had limited access to education. She made it through the eighth grade. And she struggled to gain control over her own reproductive health. After having four children, she decided to seek a divorce from her longtime husband in order to be able to choose not to have any more children during a time when reproductive options for women were extremely limited. Ironically, we're still fighting this battle 100 years later. This is my maternal grandmother, Graham Biddy's second child, who pushed boundaries in her own right. While raising a family of three girls, she managed to earn an undergraduate degree in library science and speech pathology, despite being a woman growing up in the early 1900s. Whether she was at work at home or at the library, I felt like she was always reading, always researching something, albeit sometimes informal. She and I were very close, and she managed to stay up to date on my career even into the last months of her life. She would send me articles about the latest news in women's health, always attached to a handwritten letter. During my fellowship, she started sending me timely articles about women in stroke. How nice is it to have help with your literature review from your grandmother? <laughs> it was great. And finally, my own mother, a lifelong feminist, she grew up protesting for the women's lib movement in the 1970s and exploring women's studies in college. I attribute much of the early interest, my early interest in women's health to my own mom. 
The other thing that my mom did, which was wonderful, was volunteer at a local domestic violence shelter and tutor teen moms who were facing barriers to continuing their education. Whether it was fighting for personal reproductive freedoms, nurturing a lifelong passion for learning, or providing opportunities to women in need, each of these women instilled in me a passion for learning about the social and the health needs of women. My own journey into women's health began in my hometown of Muncie, Indiana. This is it. As a teenager, I started volunteering at a domestic violence shelter, and I started witnessing firsthand what I had only heard my mom talk about. Women trying to escape dangerous situations, dangerous partners, often with young children in tow. I got to know some of these women pretty well, especially those that lived at the shelter for weeks and months while they tried to earn money, get jobs, and make it on their own. Now, the need for volunteers was often highest on the evening shifts, the overnight shifts, and the weekend shifts. Sound familiar? I guess it was preparing me for a job in emergency medicine. Anyway, I do remember one night, I was asked to take a woman and her children to the ER for a nagging abdominal pain. I corralled her children in the waiting room for what seemed like several hours while she was evaluated. But that's not what I remember the most about this visit. It was the fast-paced environment of the emergency department, and it caught my attention immediately. I was comforted by the fact that there was a place that these women could go, night or day, regardless of financial or social status, to seek health care. This was one of my first looks into medicine, and I loved it. It turned out, this was a pretty common occurrence, being asked to drive the women, sometimes their children, to the ER for what seemed like sometimes minor complaints, upper respiratory infections, fevers, sprained ankles. Now, I'm sometimes reminded of these women when I'm seeing my 10th non-urgent complaint of the shift. It reminds me to maintain my empathetic perspective. So before I knew it, I was graduating from medical school and looking for a residency spot. I had made my decision. I was gonna be an emergency medicine physician. I was gonna be able to take care of anything and everything that came through the door. But I faced some uncertainty as well. How would I continue my journey into the world of women's health and become an emergency medicine physician? My interest in women's health had only been strengthened by medical school. I became a national student leader of AMWA. I started a local domestic violence organization. So those were my criteria for residency. I needed top-notch training, and I also needed female role models that could help me explore this intersection between women's health and emergency medicine. I initially was somewhat discouraged when I met program directors who gave me blank stares. Have you considered OBGYN? <laughs> Eventually, I found my perfect match when I interviewed at Brown and learned about the newly formed division of sex and gender then under the direction of Dr. Allison McGregor and Esther Chu, and still the only one of its kind. I had found my home. I'd spent four years of residency, not only learning the practice of emergency medicine, but learning how to study gender disparities in care in conditions like ACS and sepsis. At the end of my residency, I was thrilled to accept a position as the first sex and gender fellow and I had a plan to focus on stroke. 
So why stroke? I had trained at an academic center, a comprehensive stroke center at that. I knew the ins and outs of a st acute stroke therapy. I knew about the algorithms. I knew about the time metrics. But I felt like something was missing. What about women? How did sex and gender fit into this picture? I knew from my work in residency that this one-size-fits-all approach to medicine didn't work for sepsis, it didn't work for ACS, so why would we think that it works for stroke? I started to become drawn to stories of patients, particularly women, who had waited hours and sometimes days before seeking care for their stroke symptoms, sometimes in order to continue in their roles as moms, daughters, wives, partners, and I noticed when I followed up on these patients that they often had poor outcomes. And this is when I realized this is where I would dedicate my career. So I started talking to more patients, informally and formally, some through qualitative studies. And what I learned was eye-opening and started to confirm some of my anecdotal hypotheses that I had about women's experiences around stroke. There was one woman that I remember particularly well she was 52. She still had school-aged children at home. She had been at home for over a week with debilitating headaches and visual changes before she came to the ED. She had been trudging through her day-to-day -day life, trying to take care of her family, trying to prioritize her family's needs over her own health. Do any of you know anything about that? <laughs> well, unfortunately, her symptoms continued to escalate. They escalated into unilateral weakness, at which point she did seek care in the ED. But she still faced delays to the recognition of what was eventually found to be an ischemic stroke caused by a vertebral artery dissection. She was treated, she was admitted, she had a very short stint in rehab and did make it back home. I met her a couple of months later, and her post-stroke deficits were not immediately apparent, but they were there. She had this sometimes slowed, interrupted speech, maybe like she was giving a talk in front of 800 people. <laughs> she had an ever-present anxiety about her, um, even about completing basic everyday tasks like cooking. And then she had the inability to drive or complete any task that required multitasking. Her story to me really exemplified the profound impact that sex and gender can have on stroke. Women are more likely to have headaches and other pain in addition to the traditional stroke symptoms we learn about in medical school. Women face delays to diagnostic imaging and they're less likely to receive standard of care therapies, including IVTPA, mechanical thrombectomy, and even anticoagulation for AFib. Questions about sex differences in stroke epidemiology and outcomes naturally followed, so I started looking at that. Some of our recent work has shown that stroke incidence since the 1990s seems to be decreasing faster in men than it is women. And traditional stroke risk factors like hypertension and diabetes carry a greater stroke risk for women than they do men. Women also fare consistently worse after stroke. They're less likely to make it back home. They're more likely to need help with their activities of daily living. As a group, women bear a greater burden of disease and disability following stroke. This is an issue with wide-reaching implications on population health. It is almost 2020, 
we can no longer afford to use this one-size-fits-all approach to stroke care. Going forward, we must use sex and gender-specific approaches to stroke prevention and treatment in order to take better care of everybody. Ultimately, sex and gender medicine will help us take better care of women. And not just stroke, ACS, substance abuse, mental health issues. We must view our patients, our work, and our whole world through a sex and gender lens. Sex affects everything from presentation to diagnostic accuracy to therapeutic efficacy and outcomes. And I haven't even really touched on gender, which is a key social construct that affects the long-term health of women. What I do differs from what my mom did, the traditional women's studies and domestic violence work that she pursued. And it's not quite the same as what my grandmother or great-grandmother did, fighting for reproductive freedom or struggling to get an advanced education, though I know many women still face these challenges today. I envision that my work as a physician and a researcher will help lead to fewer strokes in women and to better outcomes for the women who do suffer from stroke. The bottom line, I want to take care of women who can't do it themselves, and in that way, I'm continuing the work of the women that came before me and that continue to inspire me. Thank you. Thank you.